Welcome to Head, Heart, and Hands, the teaching fellowship of Bob Carter, pastor of River City Reformed Church in Wilmington, North Carolina. The Bible teaches that we are to love the Lord our God with all our heart and mind and soul and strength. We want to help you do just that. First, the gospel of Jesus Christ is a call to our heads. God wants us to think and to think correctly. Second, the gospel is also a call to our hearts. We are to love God and to love what God loves. And the gospel is a call to our hands. To action, real change and transformation. Now let's join our teacher, Bob Carter, for today's challenging message. The sermon this morning is entitled, The Holiness of God. Much to learn, much to fear, much to love, much to worship. We cannot take seriously enough the reality that God is so different than we are. And the problem that we get into is that we lose sight of that. And then we begin to construct a God in our image. That's the very essence of idolatry. It's the final warning of 1 John. When he says, protect yourself from idols, he means the idea of crafting a God, Christ, a Trinity in your image, rather than learning who God is and bowing low and worshiping that God by the power of his Holy Spirit. In a difficult moment, you will not rise to the occasion. You will default to your level of training. And the level of training here with King David and with Uzzah is very poor. And it cost Uzzah his life. And as we approach this passage this morning, more than ever, we have to ask, how does that affect me today? Not just did it happen, and that's significant that it did happen and that God is like that. But how does that affect me today? Will you stand to honor the reading of God's word? Second Samuel chapter 6, this is immediately following the great celebration of the unification of Israel, all Israel behind King David. There is one Israel, one king, and then the latter part of the previous chapter were two battles back to back against the Philistines, in both cases wonderfully victorious by the power of God. Chapter 6, now David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel 30,000, and David arose and went with all the people who were with him to Baal Judah to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name, the very name of the Lord of hosts, who is enthroned above the cherubim. They placed the ark of God on a new cart that they might bring it from the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. And Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, were leading the new cart. So they brought it with the ark of God from the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill, and Ahio was walking ahead of the ark. Meanwhile, David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with all kinds of instruments made of fir wood, with the lyres, harps, tambourines, castanets, and cymbals. But when they came to the threshing floor of Nachon, Uzzah reached out toward the ark of God and took hold of it. For the oxen nearly upset it. And the anger of the Lord burned against Uzzah. And God struck him down there for his irreverence. And he died there by the ark of God. David became angry because of the Lord's outburst against Uzzah. And that place is called to this day Perez Uzzah, the outbreak of Uzzah. So David was afraid of the Lord that day. And he said, how can the ark of the Lord come to me? And David was unwilling to move the ark of the Lord into the city of David with him. But David took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. Thus the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, three months. And the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his household. Now it was told King David, saying, the Lord has blessed the house of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him on account of the ark of God. David went 
and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom into the city of David with gladness. And so it was that when the bearers of the ark of the Lord had gone six steps, he sacrificed an ox and a fatling. And David was dancing before the Lord with all his might, and David was wearing a linen ephod. So David and all the house of Israel were bringing up the ark of the Lord with shouting and the sound of the trumpet. Then it happened as the Lord came into the city of David that Michael, the daughter of Saul, looked out of the window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord. And she despised him in her heart. So they brought in the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the tent, which David had pitched for it. And David offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. When David had finished offering the burnt offering and the peace offering, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord of hosts. Further, he distributed to all the people, to all the multitude of Israel, both to men and women, a cake of bread and one of the dates and one of the raisins to each one. Then all of the people departed, each to his house. But when David returned to bless his household, Michael, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David and said, How the king of Israel distinguished himself today. He uncovered himself today in the eyes of his servants' maids, as one of the foolish ones shamelessly uncovers himself. So David said to Michael, It was before the Lord who chose me above your father and above all his house to appoint me ruler over the people of the Lord, over Israel. Therefore I will celebrate before the Lord. I will be more lightly esteemed than this and will be humble in my own eyes. But with the maids of whom you have spoken, with them I will be distinguished. Michael, the daughter of Saul, had no child to the day of her death. Will you pray with me, please? God, we ask that you would help us now as we come to this passage. And many of us in this room are familiar with the facts of this passage already. And yet how quickly we neglect its deep and eternal truth. As you remind us that you are indeed as far as the heavens are above the earth, above our thoughts and our ways, that you are holy and you will be regarded as holy by those who come near. That we are to be holy as you, our Father in heaven, is holy. That without holiness, no one will see the Lord. So God, we ask that you would teach us now. That you would cause us to learn. That we might worship you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. There is much to learn about the holiness of God because he's so radically different than us in every way, including holiness. And so he tells us, he tells us about his holiness. He tells us in creation about his holiness. The heavens are declaring the glory of God, of who he is, that he's worthy of honor and respect. The sun, we are told, will burn out your eyes from 93 million miles away. And do we expect to casually stroll into the presence of its maker? Uzzah, for a split second, forgot who it was who was dwelling in the ark. But even creation tells us something about God and about his holiness and his worthiness of honor and respect. Then the flood tells us about holiness and God's view of what he is like and what we're like and the distinction between the two. Then in Exodus chapter 3, Moses turns aside to see the burning bush and as he approaches the burning bush, it speaks to him and it says to him, take off your sandals for the ground that you're standing on is holy ground. And God distinguishes some ground from other ground. And calls it holy. Then in Exodus 25, well in Exodus 20, he gives the commandments. And in the commandments, as he 
names the commandments. In the third commandment, he distinguishes that any time his name is mentioned, that there should be a holy reverence for his name. Then in Exodus 25, it says exactly how to construct the ark, the very ark that's being carried here on a new cart. And it says how to do it, which of course we all know is by placing rings on the side of the ark and then poles through the rings, six men in front and six men behind, carrying the two poles and no one touching the ark with their hands. And then in Leviticus chapter 10, after Aaron is sanctified and set aside as the high priest, and then the lineage with his genetic offspring to be the priest after that, the very first two, Nadab and Abihu, are consumed by God in the tabernacle for irreverence. All of these things I just mentioned had happened and had been recorded for David to learn. Moses says that there'll come a time that you'll ask for a king. And when you ask for a king, you're to have him. Every time a new king comes to the throne, he's to write out a copy for himself. It indicates by himself. He's to do it. He's to write out a copy of this law for himself. David should have done that. Maybe he did. We don't know. It doesn't mention it. But the point is, there's much to learn about God. And God, in his mercy, tells us about himself. This passage this morning in chapter 6 does not just happen. And then everybody stop and say, well, God, what happened? And he explains, well, I'm holy and no one should have touched the ark. He had already thoroughly explained his holiness about himself to them. In many, many other demonstrations, and just the few that I mentioned here, there is much to learn about God. And one of the things we learn about God is that he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And therefore, we must remember, he will respond in that way. So the question that as we think about that there's much to learn about God, the next question is, what about ourselves and today? What about our own worship of the Most High God and our approach to God? Hebrews 10.31 says, it's a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Hebrews 12 says, our God is a consuming fire. Brothers and sisters, the gospel really only begins to make sense when you understand that that's who God is. That God that holy is also as merciful as we understand him to be in the gospel. God that holy, God that just, God that perfect, God that beyond us is the God who says to us, call me Father and rest in my everlasting arms. And our tendency, because we are simple, is to reduce God to a grandfatherly style person. Come on over here. Everything's okay. But God demonstrates over and over again that he is very different than we are. So there is indeed not only much to learn, there is much to fear. I remind you of the quote I had in the bulletin just a few weeks ago. It was really struck me. Paul David Tripp said that the Bible is that one manual in the universe about reality. It's the one reliable manual in the universe about reality. And here we see the very nature of God. And had David and Uzzah been students of that Bible, they would have a better understanding of what was taking place. We cannot afford to be ignorant of God. That's the lesson we see here in this chapter. It's all through the scriptures, but it's very loud and clear. We cannot afford to be ignorant. There are consequences and blessings that would be missed if we didn't understand the very nature of who God is. One of the things that comes to your attention as you look at the passage in chapter 6, it says verse 3, it says it twice, verse 3, they placed the ark of God on a new cart. They placed it on a new cart. And later in the same verse it says, and they were leading the new cart. So they're thinking this is a holy, honorable thing. It shouldn't just be on any old cart. So the concept here is that a new cart is constructed expressly for this purpose. Or at least it's a brand new cart that's not been used for anything else. So they're thinking this thing is worthy of honor. They just aren't thinking, has God spoken? Has God spoken about this? And if so, what did he say? Oh, brothers and sisters, that's an application for life. Is there a God? Has he spoken? What did he say? God had spoken on this very issue 
How many times today do we conduct ourselves, whether it be in manhood or womanhood or marriage or parenting or childhood or business, and stop without, excuse me, without stopping to ask the question, has God spoken on this very issue? Do I know all that the word of God has for me on this very issue? God had spoken on this issue. But the point is, they realize there ought to be something. There ought to be something special about moving the ark. And so they craft a new cart. Where did they get that idea from? They got it from the world. When the Philistines captured the ark, God plagued them. And they, not knowing any better, but recognizing that it was due some reverence, put it on a new cart and returned it to Israel. And when Israel received it, it was on a new cart. And David might have remembered that story. He might have remembered that history. But God says he holds us accountable for what we should know. Luke chapter 12. He holds us accountable for what we should know. And David and Uzzah should have known vastly more than the pagan Philistines about how to handle the holiness of God. God is perfectly just. More knowledge and obedience is demanded of David as the leader of God's people, the God who has revealed himself. And more knowledge and obedience is demanded from us as we swim in the Bible and as we learn of it. And we have this glorious heritage of 2,000 years since Christ of men teaching on this living, active word of God. And we have the living, active word of God in our own native language. Well, they put it on the cart, and of course that's not sufficient, but they think it is. And how many times we operate on something that we think is sufficient, but it's not. And then in order that we would remember this, and this is how God works, in chapter 6 it says, this all occurs in a particular place, and the name of the place is Nachon, or Nachon. Nachon is the Hebrew word for correct. It's the Hebrew word for correct. When Israelis are speaking to each other and they want to say, am I right? Am I right? They say, nachon, nachon. Correct? And that's where this happens. They're not operating in a correct way. And here at the field of correct, God is going to give them a lifetime, a permanent memorial on the necessity of being correct about approaching God. The necessity of being correct about approaching God and the things of God. That being right and truthful is significant. It is sometimes life and death. And so he makes it easy for his people to remember, as they always remember where this actually happened. In verse 7, we see that disobedience wrapped in religion, celebration, and emotion is still worthy of judgment, condemnation, wrath, and death. Verse 7 says, And the anger of the Lord burned against Uzzah, and God struck him down there for his irreverence, and he died there by the ark. His disobedience, wrapped in religion, celebration, and emotion, is still worthy of judgment, condemnation, wrath, and death. God is to be worshipped as God is, not as how we want him to be. God's kingdom, God's way. God's kingdom, God's way. Worship other than how and obedience, other than how God has prescribed it, is not worship and obedience at all. One of the most remarkable things about this, of course, is that what has happened here is that he has touched the ark, and the ark represents the very presence of God, and he dies. And Richard Baxter, preaching to preachers, said to them, take heed to yourself. Every word you speak, every step you tread, For you bear the ark of the Lord, and you must bring him honor. Every word you speak, every step you tread, you bear the ark of the Lord, and you must bring him honor. And every, of course, he's, as I said, was addressing preachers, but every Christian can address that to themselves when we think of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Or do you not know that the Holy Spirit is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own, for you've been bought with a price, therefore glorify God. 1 Corinthians 6, the Holy Spirit in each of us, this is the same thing in us, the same person, the same God in us. It should cause us to tremble as we reflect upon how casually we carried the ark of God this past week. How casually or irreverently we carried the ark of God this past week in things we said and things we did. Look at verse 7. 
It says, in the anger, the Lord burned against Uzzah. And God struck him down there for his irreverence, and he died there by the ark. It is the anger of God over what issue? Over irreverence and how he approached him. This is what Francis Chan means when he says, I wouldn't have done that, but I'm not saying God's wrong for doing it. Francis Chan is saying, I, a sinful man, I wouldn't have thought to do that. I I would have thought a sinful man with a limited understanding, here he's trying to do his best, he put his hand out, he's trying to stabilize the ark. I, I wouldn't have done that, Francis Chan says. But God is not wrong for having done it. God is demonstrating how different he is than us and how different his thinking is than ours. And we must draw near and learn of that. Verses 8 and 9 say that David became angry. First it says that the Lord was angry. And then it says that David became angry. Verse 8, David became angry because the Lord's outburst against Uzzah. And that place is called Perez Uzzah to this day. So David was afraid of the Lord that day. Brothers and sisters, the more we know about God, there would be a reasonableness to fear in that regard. This is the same concept. It's the same reality that we see in Luke chapter 8 with the men in the boats and the wind and the waves come up and they wake up Jesus and he speaks to the winds and the waves. And the wind and waves immediately respond And now the men in the boat are more afraid of Jesus than they were of the winds and the waves. In Mark chapter 5, when the Lord Christ cast out the demons of the Gadarene demoniac, this man who couldn't be bound by chains, the townspeople come out and they're now more afraid of Jesus than they were of the Gadarene demoniac. And they ask Jesus to leave their community. We need to understand who God is as we approach him and that every aspect of our service to him should be conducted with an understanding of who it is that we're approaching. We are far, far, far too casual today in regard to understanding the honor of God and all honor as set forth in scripture because we live in a culture that has lost that and denigrates it and tramples it underfoot. But Christians will have no part of that. We do, in fact, reap what we sow, usually later, and always more than we sowed. And here, Uzzah reaps the death penalty for his failure and David's failure of knowing who God is. Of knowing who God is. And here David says in verse 8, How can the ark of the Lord come to me? He's now afraid of God and afraid of the ark, as though there's something wrong with God or something wrong with the ark, when in fact, God is being God as he always has been. And God being God warned them about what he's like. He warned them about what he's like and told Moses to take his shoes off when he approached the burning bush. God does remember, as we think of his many, many perfections, and there are many, God does remember. In Psalm 105 and many other places, but in Psalm 105, It is all about that God remembers. Psalm 104 is about creation. Psalm 105 is about God being faithful to his promise to Abraham. Psalm 106 is about how we are not faithful, but God does remember, and God is faithful. God remembers. Psalm 105 is specifically God remembers that he made a promise to Abraham. And so when the children go down to Egypt, he remembers, I made a promise to Abraham, not for Egypt but for this land up here. And 400 years go by, and he remembers his promises. Verse 42, it says, And God brought forth his people with joy, his chosen ones with a joyful shout. He gave them also the lands of the nations, that they might take possession of the fruit of the peoples of the labor, so that they might keep his statutes and observe his laws. In verse 42, it says, For he remembered his holy word with Abraham, his servant. He gave them the promised land hundreds of years later because he remembered. He remembered. That was always his plan. He remembered. God does remember. And he remembers the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he remembers the salvation accomplished at Calvary. God does remember. 
God requires us to remember. He requires us to remember. Again, back in Psalm 105, in verse 8, he says, He has remembered his covenant forever, the word which he commanded to a thousand generations, the covenant which he made with Abraham, and his oath to Isaac. And he tells us to remember. It will require great study and great intentionality. We read today uh, in the psalm that I prayed this morning that the works of God are studied by all those who delight in them. The works and the ways of God are studied by all those who delight in them because they are beyond us and we have to study and then we have to learn and then we have to remember and preach to ourselves. We will need reminders. We will need reminders. And so God gives us the word of God itself. He gives us godly fellowship. He gives us the Lord's day. In the Old Testament, he gave them particular celebrations. And even in the New Testament era, we certainly recognize not only the Lord's Day on a weekly basis, but we remember the resurrection in a particular way once a year as well, Resurrection Sunday. He gives us reminders of who he is and what he's done. Mary remembered in Luke chapter 1, in Luke chapter 1, that passage which is called the Song of Mary. Beautiful passage. She recites all the things that this is consistent with when she finds out she's going to bear the Messiah. She's like, oh, this is, this is God doing this. She says, verse 49, chapter 1 of Luke, For the Mighty One has done great things for me, and holy is His name, and His mercy is upon generation after generation toward those who fear Him. He has done mighty deeds with His arm. He has scattered those who are proud in the thoughts of their hearts. She's remembering things that happened in the Old Testament era. He has brought down rulers from their thrones and has exalted those who were humble. He has filled the hungry with good things. He has sent away the rich empty-handed. He has given help to Israel, his servants, in remembrance of his mercy, just as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his descendants forever. Mary remembers that God remembers. Mary remembers that God remembers. And God calls us to do the same. Back in our text in 2 Samuel chapter 6, after they stop everything and they are quite afraid, it says they turn aside, they put the ark in Obed-Edom's house, and the Lord blesses Obed-Edom. And so they see that this is not necessarily the ark, something to fear. Maybe they begin to study it. But we're told in First Chronicles, the answer to this, they do study it. They realize they had done it wrong. They had not followed the commands, the clear commands of God to Moses and to the generations that follow. And so it says in verse 12, back in our text, Now it was told King David, the Lord has blessed the house of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him on account of the ark. So David went and brought up the ark of God. Well, at first, it's not really crystal clear from this passage that he's doing it very differently, but it is. In First Chronicles, it tells you that this time they're bringing the 12 men. This time they brought the poles. This time they put the poles through the side of the ark and no one touched the ark and it was not put on the back of a cart. But they pick it up. But look, look at what it says. This is one of the most remarkable passages for you for the rest of your life. And so it was when the bearers of the ark of the Lord had gone six paces, he sacrificed an ox. Orthodox Jews pray before they get out of bed. And then they take six steps and they pray again. They take six steps to begin their day and they stop in their tracks and they praise God that he did not strike them dead. That in his mercy, he's allowed them to live. And they remember this passage. They start their day with six steps and a prayer. Isn't that phenomenal for every Christian to think as you start your day to take six steps in some direction and stop in your tracks remembering Uzzah, remembering his irreverence, David's irreverence and casual disregard for the clear teaching of God. Brothers and sisters, please understand that the applications of this, and many of you have heard sermons like this before, The applications of this in regard to Sunday worship are legion. There are many. 
that you can make to Lord's Day worship. But you would be wrong to stop there. It is everything you know about God. It is everything you know about God that you would come back again and again and again, swimming in the Bible, refreshing who God is and what you know about God and learning what you need to learn and unlearning what you need to unlearn in every area of our lives in whatever season of life that we find ourselves in at this time as well. They stop after just six steps and they sacrifice to God. Verse 14, and David was dancing before the Lord with all his might and David was wearing a linen ephod. He's dancing and rejoicing because he's come to a wonderful epiphany and that is that God himself does not need to be feared. It is our sin that needs to be feared. It is our ignorance. It is our sin that needs to be feared. God himself is good and holy and right and perfect and lovely. And David understands that. And he dances before the Lord with all his might. Brothers and sisters, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit is one of the basic teachings that are very clear in the New Testament of all believers. Every believer is therefore the ark of God. Every child of God, born again, possesses the Holy Spirit and is indeed a child of God with the highest responsibilities of bearing the Holy Spirit everywhere we go. And ironically, it is the Holy Spirit that enables us to bear Him. It is the Holy Spirit's power that enables us. But it is a struggle, brothers and sisters, because the world, the flesh, and the devil constantly come to us and lie to us that just a new cart will be sufficient. Just some fairly genuine, fairly feeble, pretty ignorant attempt at obedience will be sufficient. And God in crystal clarity here says, no, it is my kingdom, my way. Come near and know me better, says God. In your bulletin, J.C. Ryle says, we must have some sense of understanding this fight that it is a fight toward holiness. This is from his book entitled Holiness. If you've never read it, you must read it. It is one of the all-time best books ever written in the English language, period. He says at the top of the page there in your bulletin, the principal fight of the Christian is with the world, the flesh, and the devil. He means the world. The Philistines did it one way, and David remembered that they had done it that way. And he's like, well, that would be good enough then, wouldn't it? Rather than asking himself, has God spoken on this issue? Has God spoken on this issue? What did God say about this? Or even if he had some understanding that God had spoken on it, the flesh. God knows my heart. How many times have you heard Christians offer up feeble obedience in any form of service and then try to cover it by the phrase, God knows my heart, rather than what has God said? What has God said? And then, of course, the devil comes and just genuinely twists around what God says. These are his never-dying foes, the never-dying foes of the Christian. These are the three chief enemies against whom he must wage war. Unless he gets the victory over these, warfare is not an inappropriate phrase if lives are at stake. And the passage this morning demonstrates that lives are at stake. Unless he gets victory over these three, all other victories are useless and vain. If he had a nature like an angel and were not a fallen creature, the warfare would not be so essential. But with a corrupt heart, a busy devil, and an ensnaring world, he must either fight or be lost. And Uzzah was lost that day. He must fight the flesh even after conversion. He carries within him a nature prone to evil and a heart weak and unstable as water. That heart will never be free from imperfection in this world. And it is a miserable delusion to expect it. To keep that heart from going astray, the Lord Jesus bids us watch and pray. The spirit may be ready, but the flesh is weak. There is need of a daily struggle and a daily wrestling in prayer. I keep under my body, cries St. Paul, 
and bring it into subjection. I see a law in my members warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity. O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? They that are Christ have crucified the flesh with the affections and lust. Mortify your members which are upon the earth. He must fight the world. The subtle influence of that mighty enemy must be daily resisted and without a daily battle can never be overcome. The love of the world's good things, the fear of the world's laughter or blame, the secret desire to keep in with the world. And the more exposure you have to the world, whether that be through television or otherwise, the more influence the world's going to have. The secret wish to do as others in the world do and not to run into extremes. All these spiritual foes which beset the Christian continually on his way to heaven and must be conquered. The friendship of the world is enmity with God. Whosoever therefore will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. That means in every area of your life. If any man would love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. The world has been crucified to me and I to the world, says Paul at the end of Galatians. Whatsoever is born of God overcomes the world. Be not conformed to this world, Romans 12. And the Christian must fight the devil. That old enemy of mankind is not dead. Ever since the fall of Adam and Eve, he has been going to and fro in the earth and walking up and down in it and striving to compass one great end, the ruin of man's soul. Never slumbering and never sleeping, he is always going about as a lion, seeking whom he may devour. An unseen enemy, he is always near us, about our path and about our bed, and spying out all our ways. A murderer and a liar. And he does that with every one of the commandments. With every one of the commandments. And the Lord Christ comes in the Sermon on the Mount and he says, it's not so. The Lord Christ comes in the Sermon on the Mount and he says, every one of the commandments is broader and richer and higher and deeper than you ever thought. And you'll need the power of the Holy Spirit to do them. And I'm going to give you that power. I'm going to give you that person. A murderer and a liar is the devil from the beginning. He labors night and day to cast us down to hell. Sometimes by leading into superstition, sometimes by suggesting infidelity, sometimes by one kind of tactic and sometimes by another. He is always carrying on a campaign against our soul. Satan has desired to have you that he may sift you as wheat says the Lord Christ to Simon Peter. This mighty adversary must be daily resisted if we wish to be saved. But this kind goes not out but by watching and prayer and fighting and putting on the whole armor of God. Strong man armed will never be kept out of our hearts without a daily battle. What a remarkable reality it is here that we see the fight that must be in each of us and we see the Grave consequences right here in the passage with the death of Uzzah. There must be a fight. Look on the front of your bulletin. John Piper says this. What a remarkable phrase is this from John Piper. He says, Christ did not die just to pardon your sin. He died to empower you against sin. And those who do not embrace the power of the cross to fight their sin will not have the pardon of the cross to forgive their sin. How few Christians today understand that. And what a dividing line that draws between the visible and the invisible church. Those who do not embrace the power of the cross to fight their sin will not have the pardon of the cross to forgive their sin. We must be pleading with God each day as we swim in the Bible and seek to be filled by the power of the Holy Spirit. Well, the holiness of God also includes much love. Much love as we realize the favor of God. David comes to realize the favor of God as he gets to know God. 
The more he gets to know God, then every demonstration of God's grace to him becomes clearer and clearer that this is grace from God. And the next chapter is one of only two places in the Bible where somebody is called to be seated while they're praying. Every other time somebody's praying in the Bible, they're either standing or kneeling. But in the next chapter, he goes into the tabernacle and he sits before the Lord. And he says, who am I? And what is my family that you have brought me this far? He is overwhelmed at the goodness of God as he comes to understand that God is not focused on him, but on God's glory. God is most rightly God-centered. And David comes to understand that. And God, being rightly God-centered, is also pouring blessings down upon David. And David, he gets it. And he pours out his soul in Second Samuel 7 of praise, as he does in many places in the Psalms. But not everyone is so. Stay with me, I'm almost done. Not everyone is so. Back in our text, Michael is not so. David is delighting and worshiping before God and rejoicing as he comes to worship God as God is. And the people join in. And it's a great celebration, including feasting, as a foreshadowing of the marriage supper of the Lamb. Verse 20. But when David returned to bless his household, Michael, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David and said, How the king of Israel distinguished himself today. He uncovered himself today in the eyes of the servants' maids as one of the foolish ones shamelessly uncovers himself. Apparently, she's not happy with how he's done it. She's not happy with how he's done it because she doesn't know who God is. She's not rejoicing because she doesn't realize that David understands that Uzzah's death is in part responsible. He's partly responsible for that death. He understands now that this day, a day like the day before, this day no one died. This day God manifests his presence, his blessing. We worshiped him. David has much to worship about, but Michael doesn't know that God. Michael's heart is not stirred, even though she calls the God of the universe by his name, his personal name Yahweh here in the passage. She knows who he is. But nonetheless, David says, reminds her of the blessings of God. He says, I have much to be thankful for. Verse 21, it was before the Lord who chose me above your father and above all his house. He understands that all of Michael's brothers are gone. To appoint me ruler over the people of the Lord over Israel. And I will celebrate before the Lord. He has much to celebrate and he's not going to be discouraged by someone because they don't think they're embarrassed by the way he's doing it or whatever. That's often the case that someone else is saying you're too zealous, whether it's worship or obedience in any form of your life. But the child of God understands that. The child of God understands the priority of God and wants to lean in the direction of overflow in thanksgiving and praise and to bow low and worship God as God is. What is the application of this? Does your life, does your speech reflect a Godward heart or casual and fatal irreverence? Does your life, does your speech reflect a Godward heart or a casual and fatal irreverence for the things of God and the things that God treasures? Look in your bulletin once again at the final paragraph from J.C. Ryle. He says, we may take comfort about our souls if we know anything of an inward fight and conflict. He says, be encouraged if you see a real struggle going on within you of the old man and the new man. Because that means there is a new man. Michael does not appear to have that struggle. But David is very encouraged as he sees the struggle within him and knows the mercy and goodness of God. We may take comfort about our souls if we know anything of an inward fight and conflict that is the invariable companion of genuine Christian holiness. It is not everything, I am well aware, but it is something that we find in our heart of hearts of spiritual struggle 
Do we feel anything of the flesh lusting against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh so that we cannot do the things we would? Are we conscious of two principles within us contending for the mastery? Do we feel anything of war in our inward men? Well, let us thank God for it. It is a good sign. It is strongly probable evidence of the great work of sanctification. All true saints are soldiers. Anything is better than apathy, stagnation, deadness, and indifference. We are in a better state than many. The most part of so-called Christians have no feeling at all. We are evidently no friends of Satan. Like the kings of this world, he wars not against his own subjects. The very fact that he assaults us should fill our minds with hope. I say again, let us take comfort. And then he concludes with this, and I'm going to conclude with this, that you think on these things this week. The child of God has two great marks about him. And of these two, we have one. He may be known by his inward warfare as well as by his inward peace. What does that mean? It means that the child of God sees this struggle going on between the old and the new. He sees and recognizes the struggle going on between the old man and the new man in his life. And he desires the work of the Holy Spirit to overcome the old man, to overcome the flesh. That's the first part. There's an inward warfare. And the second part, the child of God is an effective preacher of righteousness to his soul, obtaining inward peace. When he sees that struggle going on, when he sees that sin in his life, he acknowledges it and he flees to Christ And he preaches the blood and merits of Christ to his soul. He sees that he is like David. He sees that he is a great sinner. And he understands like John Newton that God is a great Savior. God is a great Savior. Why have you not been consumed by God like Uzzah? Because of the gospel merits of Jesus Christ. Because of the gospel merits of Jesus Christ. And all who are not in Christ will be consumed far worse than Uzzah on the day of judgment and beyond. This God, this consuming fire, says to the elect, to the redeemed, Call me Father. Rest in my everlasting arms. And know inward warfare and no inward peace. Will you pray with me, please? Heavenly Father, we praise you and thank you that you do continue in your mercy and patience and long-suffering with us. We see ourselves in this passage offering up feeble and often uninformed and casual Obedience and disobedience. And sometimes, God, we foolishly believe that you're not the same as you were with Uzzah. We fail to grasp that it is by his stripes, the Lord Christ, that we are healed. That it is by his suffering, by his doing, by his dying as our substitute and by no other means that we are made right in your sight. God, teach us to be effective preachers of righteousness to our own souls. Give us a hunger and a thirst to draw near, to be one of those who delight in studying the works of God, the ways of God. Holy Spirit, that you would come and write your law on our hearts and call forth your fruit and your gifts in great abundance. God, as we see this warfare in our lives, we pray that you would indeed grant us supernatural strength to overcome to your glory. 
and that may part of our preaching always include the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. God, we do long for the new heaven and the new earth where righteousness dwells. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Will you stand now to receive the blessing of God for the people of God? The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord cause his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace now and forever. Amen. You've been listening to Head, Heart, and Hands with Bob Carter. This Bible teaching has been sponsored by River City Reformed Church in Wilmington, North Carolina. Our website is rivercityreform.org. River City Reform Church meets on Sunday mornings at 1030 at the Temple Baptist Activity Center located on the corner of 17th Street Extension and George Anderson Drive. Please visit RiverCityReform.org for more information or call us at 910-520-0272. That's 910-520-0272. At River City Reform Church, We are all about loving God with our heads, hearts, and hands. We desire to know the one true God correctly. We long to love God, our Creator and Savior, passionately. We seek to worship and serve God willingly through the power of His Spirit. God wants us and you to ask good questions. He wants us to build our faith on credible evidence, not just a blind leap. Biblical Christianity is true. He also requires and strengthens us to conform our values and behavior to reflect His goodness and holiness. We're thinking, loving, serving. Come and see. John Piper has observed, worship is not the performance of a routine of hymns and prayers and preaching and anthems. When the angel said to John who had fallen at his feet, Don't do that to me. Worship God. He did not mean recite a creed or open your hymnal or listen to a sermon. He meant connect with God. Focus on God, not the messenger. Concentrate on God, not the hymn tune. Pursue God, not just knowledge about God. And in all your focusing and concentrating and pursuing after God, seek to stir up your feelings to love Him and honor Him and admire Him and fear Him and enjoy Him and savor Him. At River City, we agree, and we are not limited by a particular style. Rather, we are compelled by a timeless thanksgiving, repentance, joy, and reverence. Our Sunday morning worship is in Wilmington, North Carolina. Please visit RiverCityReform.org for more information. On Sunday evenings, we meet for Bible study led by our pastor, Bob Carter. This study meets at 5 p.m. All are invited. Come and see. Come and see.